Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. Well, three months in, Idahoans still have a lot of questions about the University of Idaho's $685 million plan to acquire the University of Phoenix. What does the U of I get for all of that money? What's the potential financial risk to the U of I? And what are the potential advantages to doing business with a for-profit online university that has high enrollment, but a lot of baggage? To get some answers, I sat down on Friday with two top administrators from the University of Phoenix, President Chris Lynn and John Woods, the university's chief academic officer and provost. This interview is going to run a little bit long. I'll warn you about that at the outset, but I hope you'll stick with it because we get to cover a lot of ground and hopefully answer a lot of your questions about this uh, affiliation. Here's our interview, and just to kind of set the groundwork, the uh, first voice you'll hear, aside from mine, is that of Chris Lynn, the president of the University of Phoenix. Here's our interview. Thank you for making the time to be with us today. I have a lot of questions about this transaction, and a lot of Idahoans have a lot of questions about this, so I appreciate you making the time to to talk to us. Since this is my first chance to talk to you both, Chris and and John, I want to kind of begin at the beginning here and... How did we get to this point, and how did the University of Idaho become uh, your potential partner in this transaction? uh, Thanks for that question. Uh, Well, as a university, we've been, uh, I think some good context for getting here is, uh, we've been in what we refer to as a transformation for uh, quite a while, a little over 10 years, frankly, and uh, we're under current ownership that uh, acquired the university back in 2017, uh, and owners are not intended to be permanent. So uh, they came in kind of early into this transformation, and today we're at a point where uh, we've had a very successful transformation, which uh, hopefully we'll talk a little bit about today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and as we anticipated the next phase, um, and we looked at different opportunities, uh, this opportunity that we're pursuing really fit the bill of exactly what we were looking for as a university. Um, you know, we weren't interested in a similar ownership situation because we don't like the fact that there is a timeline around it. Um, and we're making great progress as an institution. We're seeing drastic improvements in student outcomes, student satisfaction, uh, the performance of the university is strong. Uh, we've built a lot of relevant differentiation. And we really wanted to partner with a state institution and a state that we thought would embrace our innovation um, and help us sort of map the path forward. So that's how we got here. We talked to our um, trustees years ago about the concept of the university becoming a nonprofit um, and why that we believe that does matter for our long-term mission. And um, we constructed an opportunity that didn't exist in the marketplace that looks a lot like the one we're pursuing right now. Um, And then in 2021, um, our trustees uh, hired outside bankers to help sort of figure out what the landscape of the market was. And and we've been in a process of uh, having these types of discussions ever since. Uh, And we found a great fit with the University of Idaho, so that's why we're here today. There's had to have been a lot of uncertainty in this process for, for you both and for your your university community. I mean, Apollo wants to, to sell the university, and you've been dealing with a lot of potential partners. Arkansas very nearly uh, approved a partnership. 
talk about how that has affected your, you and your, your staff, your faculty, your students. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you have to know a little bit about us. Uh, we, we are, um, and as you get to know us, we've actually been around the state. We were just talking, this is our fourth trip. Uh, we're sharing our story with uh, elected officials and leaders in the state. Uh, and it's a great story. Uh, but at the heart of who we are, we, we're a mission-oriented organization. We've been serving working adults for almost five decades. Um, we've been a pioneer in the space, and uh, we've been in a transformation period where uh, we've really honed our focus on that core working adult, and we're getting tremendous outcomes. Um, and so when you think about our community, we have over 3,100 professionals that work for us. Um, just to sort of really signify the mission orientation, the average tenure of our team uh, across 3,100 employees is 11 years. And then on top of that, I think we have 2,300 to 2,500 faculty that have an average tenure of over 15 years. Um, they're totally committed to the mission and to student success. Um, and so we have a lot of positive energy. Uh, our engagement scores are at all-time highs. Our culture is very strong. And what's most important to them is the ability for us to continue to pursue this mission. Um, and um, so a couple of things to answer your question. One, uh, we have an unbelievable team. So we've been executing well. Our, our performance has continued to improve e even during this very long period of having these outside discussions. Um, for folks like uh, John and myself, uh, we have the luxury of, of having very capable people that uh, have done a great job of continuing to improve the university while we pursue the deal. Uh, you'll also find that we're very transparent and we've always been that way with our community. So um, these discussions, I mean, before we were even having discussions with um, state universities and the like, we were telling our community that this is a path that we'd like to pursue. Um, so there's a lot of consistency and engagement. Um, and so things are going actually really well with the faculty and the students and the staff. They're actually excited about the deal. We've, um, they understand it, uh, what we're contemplating, and uh, are really excited about um, getting it accomplished. There's been uncertainty on on this end too. Idahoans have a lot of uncertainty about this, and a lot of it really stems from the NDA. Mm -hmm. um, can you speak to that? Can you speak to the need for the NDA from your university's perspective, and how that has you know maybe added to the skepticism that some people have? Yeah, I. That's, thank you for asking that. Um, the the nature of this, you know, so we, we were in talks for quite a while with the University of Arkansas system, that's well understood, um, and, and other talks. And so while we're having discussions, none of these uh, talks are leading to something permanent until you actually have an agreement that you're going to pursue, uh, but require an immense amount of diligence. Um, so uh, those that were involved with that transaction know us inside and out. Um, they, they've looked at probably hundreds of thousands of uh, student records and data about our institution that's highly proprietary, uh, about how we do what we do, uh, things that um, are competitive advantages about how we deliver our education. So there's a lot to protect in the process. Um, and and it's, very, it's very normal in these types of deals to have very stringent uh, NDAs. 
in addition to that, we're, we're regulated, highly regulated. Uh, we have accreditors that have high expectations. And so, and, and, and the deal like this is extremely complex, um, as you'll just learn as you continue to report yeah. on it. So uh, it's uh, immensely important that pieces of information don't get out that don't have the full story, um, especially when you're in the process of not even having a deal yet. So, um, you know, our owners and our trustees found it extremely important to have um, NDs, NDAs in place for that reason. Um, and, you know, the, the minute we were able to enter into an agreement, the one thing I will point out is um, it was a high level of discomfort to be as transparent as we knew we needed to be um, working with a public institution. Um, and uh, so, so I think the intent has been to be, uh, I mean, you'll see just if I, just as an example, John and I wrote a letter uh, to uh, an open letter to the legislature. We've been sharing that with a lot of folks. We, we put together a presentation that we've shared with uh, the governor and his staff and all sorts of elected officials in the state. And it tells our story end to end. And there's a lot of competitive uh, information in there uh, that we're sharing because uh, we think it's important given the moment. And uh, and we were guided that way by the University of Idaho, too. So I think a lot of the concerns around transparency really have to do with the timeline. Um, uh, but uh, in terms of us needing an NDA, it was really about just making sure we had an agreement before we could release that type of information. Beyond the NDA and, and that issue, I, I'm really curious about the melding of two universities that, that have a lot of things that are, are very different about them. Mm -hmm. I mean, the University of Idaho is a land-grant institution. It's largely residential. Most of their students are 18 to 22. You're for-profit, but you're also online, and that's maybe one of the biggest differences. And your student cohort is a lot different because yeah. of that. Yeah. I, I'll start. How do these two mix? Yeah, so um, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a student of higher education, like you. Um, my my uh, doctorate is in higher education administration. I spent time at both nonprofits and for-profits, state universities and liberal arts colleges, as well as places like Phoenix. Um, what's really interesting about this partnership is that it is complementary and we don't overlap. It's an acknowledgement on the part of uh, University of Idaho, similar to acknowledgements made by people like Arizona State, Purdue, University of Massachusetts, and others, that higher education is very dynamic and changing and more and more the growing concern for higher education has to be serving working adults because it's an exponentially larger population and one that's growing every day and that people, even if they are 17 to 24 year old traditional students, will be learners for life because of the pace of change in society, particularly as it relates to the world of work and the technology impacts on the world of work. And so you can say that the University of Idaho serves a traditional 17, 18 to 24 year old population and, and that's their core, and it should be. Uh, we serve an average age population of 38 people who, who understand that they need training and development and education of all different types that we offer for life. And the two allow an institution through an affiliation, not a melding or a merger, but through an affiliation to serve the entire landscape as opposed to a piece of it and a declining piece of it, uh, arguably. 
it goes to what I've heard Scott Green say over and over since May that you know, traditional universities are facing an enrollment cliff. And that's an enrollment cliff in the 18 to 22 year old cohort because of declining birth rate and so on and so forth. You're serving a niche that's a growth sector. That's correct. The um, you know th- what what people uh, may or may not understand about uh, the enrollment trend is is that um, uh, the during the Great Recession people had fewer kids, and those kids are now uh, nearing high school completion age, and there are fewer of them. The graduating classes of high school students are smaller, and will be much smaller in the next five to ten years, and that there are a number of institutions competing for a pie that. Is is getting smaller, uh, and uh, that creates resource challenges because institutions have fixed costs based on uh, larger graduating classes from high school for many decades, uh, and and so it's it's prudent we think for an institution to acknowledge that an exponentially larger population is the working adult, one that is growing as opposed to declining, and that again societal changes are such that uh, that population will always need some form of education. And, and um, you know, uh, it's not just the University of Idaho that have seen that. We've seen uh, a budget cut, a massive budget cut at the uh, University of West Virginia, where they're laying off full-time faculty, tenured faculty, by eliminating their programs. Uh, 50 or $60 million uh, deficit has been widely reported. And in the articles that, that speak about their challenges, gut-wrenching challenges, um, they've listed numerous other state universities that are facing similar shortfalls. Um, uh, and and so the University of Idaho has undergone a bit of its own transformation and and, uh, and stabilized its enrollment, but sees that that stabilization, given the demographic trends, could be disrupted in the future. So it, among other things, led to these discussions. Your pie is growing. But so too is the competition, because everybody can see that that pie is growing. So you've got more competition from exclusively online schools, but also from traditional schools that are trying to get a share of it and had to move into it during the pandemic anyway. Yeah, absolutely. There's not a school in the country that's not considering how they will address the shortfall. And there's probably not a school in the country that isn't in some way trying to get more working adults in the door or online uh, through a virtual door. Um, They, as you said, um, some of those institutions have done it uh, themselves. Some of those institutions have done it with a partner that helps them identify the programs and build the programs and market to the students and enroll the students. Those are called OPMs, online program managers. And now those organizations support hundreds of schools but share in the revenue. Uh, in significant ways. Uh, And then you've got institutions that have done um, uh, different things through affiliation and acquisition, and I mentioned some of those. So there is a lot of competition. In fact, that's another reason uh, for consideration of not doing it yourself is because there are already a number at scale who know how to do it. There are already a number that are powered by uh, OPMs that know how to do it. And the barriers to entry to say, okay, we're going to start doing that ourselves um, are pretty significant and require you know decades of experience. Yeah, if, if, I, if you don't mind if I add something to that. Um, I, I think that is uh, one of the reasons why we are where we are is 
um, the value of what we bring to the table is understood. Um, and so when you think about um, competition, um, there are several ways of doing it. The OPMs, um, uh, there's a few institutions that have the scale and, and breadth and reach and experience that we do. Um, and uh, the barriers to entry are, are tremendous now. Um, you know, we've built a digital-ready infrastructure that's data-driven across an entire student journey um, that is critically necessary for the working adults that, that, that we support who are, you know, busy professionals, uh, two-thirds of them have dependents, uh, 80% of them are working while they're pursuing their education. So uh, the systems that we've built that are intended to understand these behaviors in a way that we're serving up the best way to service them, to help them stay focused on their education, are extremely valuable. And you'll see that in, in some of the, the outcomes uh, that, that we're achieving in relation to others. And it's not something, even uh, when you use an online program manager, you can't uh, accomplish that type of service for the student. So um, when you think about the value that we can bring to a University of Idaho, and I think this is where Scott Green is really focused, is there's a lot of capabilities um, that, that we do bring even to serving his population, that we can help them with technologies and support systems um, that will add a lot of value to driving retention improvements, growth and enrollment, uh, and the like. So. Um, there, there is there is a lot of value to this, and it's also uh, from our perspective the reason why we're excited to be here is um, to pursue those types of things, but also because a lot of the differentiation we've built because we're we believe pretty far ahead of many that are trying to do this type of thing. Uh, we've built differentiation, uh, and, and John, and hopefully at some point in this can talk about our skills-aligned curriculum and the things we're doing with employers, um, that if we are able to work with a university like the University of Idaho, and frankly, we've been having conversations with state leaders that um, our, our view is every conversation has gone very well in seeing the value that we can help Idaho uh, bring to their learners um, across the state or potential learners and employers um, that that is exciting about our ability to pursue our mission uh, of supporting these learners. What do you see in the, the market, the education marketplace of Idaho? I mean, you only have a few hundred students uh, enrolled in Idaho right now, as I understand. I, well, I think that's a huge opportunity because when you come into, there's a lot of things we love about Idaho. One, you have 200,000 um, students that exemplify what you see across the nation. They have some or no college education. Um, I saw a statistic. I think um, those that tw between 25 and 35 have maybe a third of them have a bachelor's at, uh, uh, degree. Um, so within those 200,000, there's plenty of opportunity um, and, and likely desire and from everything we're hearing, that, um, legislators are hearing that, um, the University of Idaho and others are hearing that, uh, and we can help solve those problems for those learners. And we believe we can do it in a very differentiated way based on uh, the innovations we've been bringing to working adults. Um, so the ability to solve those problems in the ways um, that we are solving them today. Uh, for example, we have a tremendous amount of uh, students that are employees at companies that pay for some or all of the education of our employees. We're seeing tremendous growth there. Um, and we're talking to a lot of these companies about um, helping them align the skills of these employees to the skills required in the 
uh, gaps that they have in their organizations and bringing solutions to actually identify those pathways so we can really solve problems at the level of the skills required. Um, that's a powerful thing that if we could work with the state and employers in the state to solve those problems, not only are we solving real problems in Idaho, um, but we can bring those solutions to a national scale, and that's consistent with our mission. Addressing some of these age-old challenges in Idaho education, uh, getting rural students to continue their education, Absolutely. first gens. Yeah. And these, these are the things we're really good at, which, is, which I think is where there's alignment of overall vision across uh, many of those who care about education in Idaho. But what's important is um, these issues in Idaho exemplify issues across the nation. Um, and so there is a very strong fit for us in terms of the ability to work with the state um, to solve those problems. Let me get to a couple of questions I think everybody has right now as, as they process this and digest this and try to come to grips with it. What does Idaho get for the money here? I mean, what, what is the, the nonprofit that eventually would assume Phoenix? What do they get for the millions upon millions of dollars that this transaction is going to cost? Well, so it's a great question. Um, first of all, let's just make sure it's clear um, what what the transaction is. Right. So today, uh, University of Phoenix is um, actually owned directly. So this isn't not not to get into technicalities, but it, this is an asset purchase. So the assets of the university, our capabilities, are being purchased by four three education. Um, and 4-3 Education is a nonprofit entity that's been created by its sole member, who, who is the Board of Regents uh, for the University of Idaho. So that, that nonprofit is going to acquire the University of Phoenix assets, and once that completes, we will we be the University of Phoenix as we are today. No change to our creditor, to regulators, except that we'll, we, we will be a nonprofit. So we will be 4-3 Education doing business as University of Phoenix. So the whole thing, all the assets, everything. All the assets. And so basically what, what's technically happening is University of Phoenix, comma, Inc., a for-profit, is selling the assets of that is the University of Phoenix to 4-3 Education, uh, I think, Inc., which is a nonprofit that is um, therefore going to be University of Phoenix as a nonprofit. Um, that University of Phoenix in the future will be governed as it is today by an independent board of trustees um, and will continue to pursue its mission and its strategies with this team. Um, and, uh, you know, for the most part, other than being nonprofit, there's no change. Um, and, and that's well understood by the community and, and within the deal. The opportunity is in the affiliation agreement that we're going to uh, explore and we will enter into eventually with the University of Idaho. And that is about exploring the best ways to do the things we're talking about, leveraging best practices across the institutions, developing pathways for the state uh, citizens of Idaho. Um, and so uh, within that, uh, to the extent that any uh, money does actually come out of 4-3 education, um, it will be used to uh, fund those types of initiatives that are agreed upon. And, and those initiatives, not, not to get really technical, but since we're sort of going on the record, anything that we pursue, each institution's 
normal governance process will have to approve the pursuit of those um, and, and any funding of those initiatives. So uh, we like this because, you know, we have a common interest uh, in a ver two very complementary systems to support really important macro trends that are important to Idaho. And we've uh, established a way of operating as two institutions um, that, that uh, were mutually incented to um, continue to support our respective missions while working together. And, and there's talk about how does the nonprofit utilize the assets that it acquires? I mean, can they apply the, the assets to dual credit? Does that have all of uh, the, that the, the nonprofit, the determination of the, the way it works as an accredited institution, this is a requirement of the accreditor. Um, the allocation and the planning of use of our resources, being the University of Phoenix, um, is determined by the management team. So today we we come up with our priorities, our strategies, our budgets and plans. Now we take that to an independent board of trustees whose primary role is to ensure that the pursuit of strategies is consistent with the mission. Like, and that's what our creditor cares a lot about. So they're gonna make sure that they govern against our mission, and then they make sure that um, our budgets are within the financial parameters of the university so that we're thriving and we're investing properly against that mission. So that's not gonna change. It's gonna still be a leadership team that is uh, planning the best direction for the university. Uh, we'll, we'll have um, this added benefit of being able to work with the University of Idaho to identify opportunities to pursue that will will be part of that planning process. Um, but it, anything that we actually pursue will be part of the governance of that independent board of trustees. Another financial question that, that people have focused on a lot since May is the fact that the University of Idaho has agreed to, to backstop for threes payments if, if necessary. Uh, so there's some financial risk involved for the University of Idaho. How concerned should people be about the yeah, likelihood? That's that a great question, because I, I didn't ask answer part of your uh, last question that I can answer as part of this one. So um, as 4-3 education um, that is uh, doing business as University of Phoenix when the deal completes, 4-3 education um, is going to fund the acquisition of those assets by uh, issuing bonds. So you could go to a bank and you can get a loan to buy a company. The plan that's in place is that 4-3 Education will um, pursue raising the funds in the municipal bond market. So we have experts that have looked at this completely, understand the market. Um, we've actually put hedges in place so that when we're able to go to market, because we have to actually have the deal approved before we can go to market, um, that 4-3 that Education will raise the funding to support um, the, uh, the, the acquisition. So it will be contained within 4-3 Education, which is an independent entity of the University of Idaho. Um, now, in terms of University of Idaho, they, they've mentioned up to 9.9 .9 million. Or, yeah. um, so when we're exploring what that market may look like, so uh, it's believed, as, is, as it stands today, that it may be beneficial for University of Idaho to provide that $10 million backstop uh, when we go raise funds. And I say we, 
but it's not really we we're the University of Phoenix today it'll be we once the deal's completed because we we, we will be the management team um, that is responsible for uh, managing the debt service on on any um, bonds that are that are raised but um, when the, to get optimal terms in the public market, it's believed that that 9.9 million a year guarantee may be helpful, but it's not guaranteed. So there there has been some indication that they may not even have to provide that guarantee for us to get proper terms. But in terms of the so, question so is about 9.9 9 a last resort, or it's, a, is it it's an a, option, yeah, the, the, or it's, is it an option that it's a, it's a it's an absolute last resort, and and that's what's really really important. And this is something that we've um, had many, many meetings with folks in the legislature and the Senate and the House um, and other officials who really want to understand that question. Um, there is plenty of room to uh, uh, finance those bonds and leave uh, considerable new cash flow generation after debt service with what are considered very conservative uh, projections of what we will achieve. Uh, projections that we're already literally achieving this year. Our, our year end ends in less than two weeks, actually next week. Um, and we're already achieving, you know, the proxy for earnings that was shared with the JFAC committee is, is when they modeled this out. The goals that would the goals the goals that for you yeah the 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 goals that were in the out years like I whatever the last year on that model that was shared we're already actually achieving that earnings today. So those are very conservative, and in those models and, and with very fair and accurate representations of the bonds that would be issued by 4-3 Education, after servicing the debt, the principal and interest, there's considerable, in the first year, I think it's over $50 million of uh, incremental excess revenues or cash flow generation revenue. that can be reinvested back into our university, that can be contributed to the affiliation that we agree upon uh, with the University of Idaho. So um, for something to happen, some, some catastrophic situation, you'd have to have a massive reversal um, of our performance given um, even in a conservative, something that we're already outperforming, we would have $50 million of cash flow just in year one. And that would that type of generation would continue each year. And, and we're actually growing right now. So, so you'd have to have severe enrollment. Severe enrollment. And um, the way we're doing this deal, we're actually, the, our sellers, uh, so this side of the university is leaving $200 million of, uh, of cash on the balance sheet. Day one, there will be $200 million of cash on the balance sheet. And then what's contemplated and what we believe will be expected when the bonds are raised. So I think one of the questions that's been out there is, well, there's a $550 million purchase price on the assets, but there's like a 600 and a lot of that different, part of that difference is there's a lot of transaction costs. People get paid who had to help, you know, advisors and attorneys, et cetera, you know, the, the bond issuers, there's a percentage that goes to bond issuers. So transaction costs. But the, the primary difference in the remainder is, it, remainder is we'll be expected to raise more than we need to create a debt reserve fund, which is literally just cash on the balance sheet in case something happens. So that the, the bond market will underwrite the bonds and say, we think you need something like 60 or $70 million of reserve. So we want you to borrow that and put it on your balance sheet and keep it there as a reserve. So 200 million plus 60 to 70 million, that's how much cash day one. And we're uh, in a very conservative scenario in year one generating 50 million 
possibly a lot more of additional cash and just continue to accumulate cash. So you'd have to burn through all of that in some scenario to even contemplate U of I being on the hook if they even do provide a guarantee for that 9.9 million. It, it, is, a, it is an extremely low like, like, likelihood, much less than 1%. And how would an increase in interest rates affect all of that? It's a great question. Um, so obviously we're in a relatively unprecedented time in the market. Um, we've actually entered into an instrument to hedge interest rate risk. So um, because we can't go to a public market until we have approval, and we're anticipating um, to, to receive our Higher Learning Commission accreditor approval in November. So if that all plays out as planned, then we go to market. So what we've done is we've entered into a rate uh, hedge instrument um, that protects us if rates continue to rise. In, in fact, um, uh, our CFO reminded us yesterday that when we entered into that instrument, uh, it was like literally just by luck a few days before the downgrade of the U.S. Uh, bonds. Um, so, so that um, interest rate hedge is actually in the money like $6 million right now. So if rates continue to rise, that, that um, hedge just gets more valuable and, and it offsets any risk that rates go up and that the uh, projected debt service goes up. So uh, we're, we're reasonably hedged against any of that risk. And, and frankly, the rates, as we get to know the market better, have tightened up in a positive way a little bit. So we're, we're, we're very confident that we're in a very predictable range of what that debt service will look like. You wanted to talk, and you alluded to it in the beginning, about how the University of Phoenix has changed over the years. But to preface it, I, I do want to talk about some of what's happened in the past. I mean, you've had a precipitous decline in enrollment. You've closed most, if not all, of your physical campuses. That's correct. There are the reputational issues that that, that affect Phoenix, uh, you know, such as the Federal Trade Commission settlement mm -hmm. of a couple of years ago. All of these taken together give people some pause. It give some people a lot of pause about yeah. this uh, transaction. What what are we missing in that narrative? I mean, yeah, yeah I I I, I, I I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to that. So it, we we. Um, I've been with the university for five years. Um, this this management team has has been part of this transformation since 2017. Uh, several of us, um, you know, th this began a little earlier than that. Um, our way of operating is heads down, uh, building a better university, and we um, do what we do really well and um, should get a lot of credit for it. So hopefully, now that we're being transparent uh, with the results that we're um, uh, achieving for our students uh, and outcomes in terms of uh, uh, retention improvements, graduation rates compared to uh, rates for the students that we serve. Um, I think uh, when you unpack that story, you're going to see it's a very strong one. In terms of your question, um, you know, one in terms of the reduction in enrollment uh, in the 2000s, we were, we're we we have always been a disruptor in higher ed. Um, you know, something like online. We brought online to higher education at scale. We are the pioneer. Um, for decades, that was questioned. The efficacy was questioned. Now it is the accepted choice and modality for adult students. Adult students do not choose to go to ground campuses. Um, over the last 10 years, we began to give our students the choice between 
our ground-based locations and online. Um, and they resoundingly chose online because they're adult learners and, uh, and online has really been adopted and the efficacy has been proven over the last decade. Um, and during the pandemic, uh, those that were on ground-based campuses had to go immediately online and the satisfaction rates were very high. So we made our decision, I think it, we had nine campuses at the time that we were gonna go down to just our one sort of flagship Phoenix campus, but but we're basically a fully online basically, university. Yeah, student body voting with its feet. That, that was the student Dur body's choice. The, the other big one was, um, you know, we in, in, in when we were in growth mode, uh, and really the only game in town, and I say that um, with, with a little bit of, you know, obviously there's other online universities, but we had over 400,000 enrollments. Uh, a quarter million of those were, were from associate degree programs online. And, and that's one big and primary example of where uh, we got a little bit off mission. You know, we the, our university was founded uh, for as a degree completer. Like our original admissions requirements were 60 credits um, to to be admitted into the institution. And so when we grew into the associate degree, we started to compete with community colleges rather than be a partner to community colleges. Um, so we made a choice before, uh, and probably in the 2010 timeframe, where we realized we really needed to exit those programs. They were they were off mission. That took over a decade. Um, and that, you know, even as part of this transformation that began in 2017, there was a long tail. Um, now, I think we have how many associate programs? Two. Two associate programs that uh, strategically fit into um, the laddering we have. Many of those go on to complete a bachelor's ultimately. Um, and we've exited most and we've recommitted to our partnering with um, community college. In fact, we have a community college, a very innovative one with the College of Western Idaho uh, that we've been sharing with folks. And, and we're seeing a lot of growth in that. So that's that's one of those examples of a recommitment to mission. But when you're the largest university in the U.S. Um, and a quarter million of those students are in programs that you've decided to exit, um, that's a long process. Now, I'll say our financial um, cap uh, discipline and our financial strength was solid that entire time. In fact, even when our re revenue was reducing in the period of time I've been here, um, our cash flows and earnings have been very stable. Uh, we've built a very efficient system that has uh, dramatically improved student outcomes while generating the average of the last three years, $120 million of cash flow, which is growing to $140 million this year. And now we're back into growth mode. Uh, health in growth mode. And we're outperforming a lot of that competition you were talking about. And the FTC. FTC, well, yeah. That's a non-starter for some folks. Yeah, it's a non-starter. You know, look, when we're heads down trying to improve the university, like, we, we don't see uh, a benefit uh, of getting out in the media in general and trying to tell our story because the moment hasn't come until now. And we're telling and you're going you're gonna to see a very different University of Phoenix than you, than you uh, um, read about. That's often used uh, against this university. It's, it's quite frustrating to us. That, that relates to an ad campaign that uh, was run, I think, between 2012 and 2014. Um, that uh, FTC uh, made the claim uh, in 2015, which is before um, the change in ownership that occurred in 2017. Uh, first and most importantly, we vigorously um, uh, defended our position on that ad. In fact, when we were in discussions with the FTC, we uh, put the ad on our website and invited people to review it. Um, you know, we worked with corporations that 
uh, agreed to, to be represented in our ad. There's a let's get the work campaign. Um, and so we felt very strong about our position. And as part of the settlement, we never uh, agreed that we did anything wrong. We agreed to settle. Um, and the decision to settle was primarily a simple business decision. Um, there was a cash portion of that settlement that was $50 million. And then there was, uh, we, what we did is we wrote off $140 million of receivables that were very old that frankly, we weren't even attempting to collect on anyway. So that's how you get to that 190 million number. Uh, but the decision on our end was simply, do we pursue a fight um, on this or do we put it behind us? and just continue to drive this transformation. And that's what we chose to do. Um, and and that's where it is. So uh, it's a reflection of something that predates this transformation, predates this team, predates the current owners that should get a lot of credit for um, recommitting to our mission and getting tremendous outcomes. Um, and it's not at all a reflection of, of the University of Phoenix that we are today. Let me shift to where we are in terms of this transaction right now and, and a couple of uh, issues that have that are looming right now. I mean, yeah. you're a creditor. So as I understand, you have a site visit with the creditors next week. Next week. So what are you hearing from creditors at this point heading into this? Uh, are they raising concerns about the transaction, uh, questions about the I'll transaction? I'll let John elaborate on this, but just, just a, a couple points I'll make. Um, our creditors... Um, uh, have acknowledged that we've given them everything that uh, is required and probably a little bit more um, to be very clear about what is happening here, happening here so that um, they feel um, well-informed about uh, what's being contemplated. And most importantly, that um, this transaction is, as I described it to you, this is a continuation of the University of Phoenix, Phoenix's mission um, and way of operating. There's nothing here that is intended to change. Um, and so they'll come and they'll corroborate those things and talk to a lot of members of our community. They'll talk to um, 4-3 and members of the University of Idaho. Um, but our accreditation process, just by chance, last year in September, we had um, really the pinnacle for any university. Um, you know, our creditor accredits uh, universities like University of Chicago and Purdue University. Same standards across uh, 14 states and, and many institutions, many state institutions. Um, and the pinnacle is a you know, what's called a 10-year reaffirmation visit. So they comprehensively look um, at a university against all of the criteria. Um, and we met all of them and, and uh, actually did very well. And the outcome of that is we got a 10-year reaffirmation. And we got an outcome that I think one in five or one in four universities get based on the strength of that visit. So that's... Um, that's helpful because our creditor has seen that. That was an independent peer-reviewed process. Um, and so if things don't change, which they're not going to, uh, we, we anticipate our creditor being very supportive of this. So, and, and how much of the accreditation review becomes a review of governance and operations as opposed to academics? Because what's yeah. changing here is governance and yeah. operations. In fact, the 10-year um, the reaffirmation visit that, that Chris dis, uh, just described is exactly that confirmation of a real comprehensive process against all the criteria. Uh, it allows them, uh, again, because it just so recently happened, it allows them to come in and be more focused on what is a, a different kind of visit uh, called a change of control visit. 
they have um, a set of criteria that need to be met for a change of control to be approved. Had they not visited us recently, they might want to look at a lot more things, uh, have a much more uh, broader uh, view at a different lens. But uh, that 10-year that, uh, reaccreditation that took place was affirmed by what they have in, in their structure, their Institutional Actions Council, uh, only in January. And so the visit happened in September. A team wrote a report. The report went to the commission. The commission reviewed the report, accepted the report, and, and as Chris said, offered us something they call open pathway, which very few institutions get. You only get if they have no concerns and no follow-ups that they want to schedule, no monitoring they, they will require. Again, because of all that, they can be very focused on the change of control set of things. So uh, if, you, uh, you know, if you're curious what those are, they're just like you said. They're related to finances and, and financial stability. They're related to governance structures and legal structures. They can look at anything they want. They could, uh, out of interest or otherwise, uh, look at things that the visiting team looked at six, nine months earlier, uh, a year earlier. They can, they can do those things, but really their focus will be governance. And to Chris's point, um, where we're creating an independent board. They'll ask about that board. Um, they'll want to look at the board's bylaws. Uh, we're writing bylaws that are very similar to our current bylaws. They want to look at finances and financial models, which we've created and shared with everybody from, from JFAC to individual meetings with, with legislators. Um, and, and they've received in the application materials we've already submitted to them. And, and so uh, in, we're, we're excited. I'll, I guess I'll, I'll end that, that, uh, uh, that answer with the fact that we've had a great relationship with our accreditor. Uh, we've, uh, it, just in our time, this time, this team's time, we've had a mid-cycle evaluation, which is part of their process, and their 10-year reaffirmation, which is part of their process. In both those instances, we socialize with them that our president, former president before, before Chris, uh, believed that uh, a, a good outcome for the university eventually would be something like this. And those conversations have happened with our creditor, not just when we filed the application uh, a few months ago, um, but in fact for years. And uh, you know, our, as Chris said, our community, whether it's our faculty or our staff, they've been very aware that this was contemplated as a possible outcome for the institution, and so is the accreditor. So I think that sort of is indicative of the transparency we've had with them. Another variable out there right now is the lawsuit, the Attorney General's lawsuit against the state board. And I'm not going to ask you to weigh in on open meeting law, but I'm really interested in the filings and some of the statements in the filings uh, expressing concern that this lawsuit uh, could cause the accreditors to balk at, at acting. Your accreditors and you advise accreditors. In a climate where you do have other 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 bidders potentially other institutions other states that are still interested in in a transaction it, it creates the impression that there's a lot more flux in this than than maybe we thought before this lawsuit was filed well i i, I don't look we're, we're fully committed to this transaction um and you know we can't um, and we don't want to weigh into uh, the dispute over open meetings laws. Um, we see that as uh, likely to uh, have context beyond the importance of this deal that, that's being contemplated here. Uh, so where we're focused is, uh, one, we see from, from the perspective of 
um, the agreement that we've reached with the University of Idaho um, that we're pursuing is being reviewed by the HLC. Um, we, we don't see this as uh, uh, a huge issue to that because um, if any contention is made uh, related to that issue and this agreement, that's easily curable. And there's 100% commitment to uh, moving this forward. So we're just focused on um, continuing to, to move things forward and we're fully committed to the steel. There, there are, there was some mention of um, other institutions, uh, which is true. Um, the reason we arrived at the uh, agreement with U of I was uh, because we think we had the right partner and we think we had the right state. Uh, we think this meets all of our requirements of what we're looking for. So, um, and, and we want um, this deal to happen. So how and it also, it also met our requirement um, coming into us that we wanted um, to get this done now. And, and so timing matters. Those other opportunities um, didn't necessarily have the same timing element, and that did have uh, play in, in, in getting to this, this deal that's on the table. So how active or how engaged are these other potential bidders? Is it just sort of them saying, if something falls through, we're interested, or do they actually Well, it, it just, uh, the way I would look at it is um, you, you could have asked that question um, sometime, and I'm not going to get into dates because I know dates matter now. Because, but the way we operate at the university is, um, you know, in, two, in in sometime in I think April 2021, our trustees engaged our bankers um, to go have these conversations. Um, our bankers were pretty good about, um, and, and our owners, in, in evaluating and filtering opportunities and only brought that to this leadership team when it was worthwhile for us to put time and energy because we're running a university. Kind of to your very first question, um, our focus is to make sure we're not um, diluting the focus of running the university. Um, and so even when we were pursuing the University of Arkansas system deal, we were, as a management team, we were solely focused on that, although there were very um, serious potential other conversations going on. Um, and uh, when we started to get close to the Board of Trustees meeting for the University of Arkansas system, I believe our bankers started um, talking to Idaho because Idaho did have some real interest. And when that trustee meeting didn't go the way we had anticipated, um, we engaged pretty hard with Idaho. So th that's kind of how I would look at any of these opportunities. If, if um, for some reason we were in a different situation right now where we weren't planning to complete a deal with Idaho, um, yes, there's there's other um, conversations out there. But frankly, I haven't had any of these conversations since I've been focusing, focused on um, Idaho because this is the deal that we plan to uh, complete. One last question. So we've covered a lot of them, but I want to ask you both. What is the, your biggest concern about getting this deal done? What, what is the biggest obstacle that you see or that you are most concerned about at this stage of the game? And what is the, the, the thing that gives you most confidence that something is going to happen at the end of the day? Um, I think I... You know, it, this is a highly complex deal, so, um, you know, our job is to be concerned about um, all elements of moving it forward. But I think what's most important is that um, this is this is a great opportunity for everyone involved. Um, there is no party involved from the constituents in this party to the leaders in the state of Idaho to regulators and accreditors that if they understood the pure substance of the deal, 
that uh, we haven't put something that is um, good for students, um, good for the state, uh, and um, good for our regulars and regulators and accreditors and what they expect from us and and what they expect in higher education. So we have constructed something here that we believe meets um, the desires, needs, and requirements uh, of everyone. So our hope is that that becomes very uh, clear and crisp and understandable to all involved, which is why we're very motivated to be super transparent uh, because we have a very good story to tell and we think we have a very good deal on the table. So we're hoping that uh, if, if everyone's educated, that, that that's um, very likely to, to, to uh, result in, in the completion of the deal. I guess uh, my biggest excitement comes from the fact that Chris said a couple times we, we keep our heads down and, and run the university with a, a, a real passion and a, and a mission and a, and a focus and a, and a desire to, to improve it every day. And um, we uh, really only until very recently uh, started talking about some of the innovations that we think are really progressive and ahead of some of our competitors and are differentiated. And uh, this would give us an opportunity to speak more about those in different venues and to solve problems in places where uh, we're sometimes not welcome, frankly. And we solve some real workplace issues for states with what we have or, or believe we can. And um, sometimes we're just not welcome at the table because of our tax status. Sometimes we're not welcome at a conference because of our tax status. So we started to get out there and tell these stories more lately. And uh, it's raised a lot of eyebrows and, and we've been really, really well received. And, and Get you to focus more on academically governance and structure. So you see more as an academic Well, but, but I think it's, we are properly focused on academics but we and just, solving real problems. But we just academics. don't we just don't get viewed that way yeah. sometimes. Right. You know what we believe that we have uh, leaders in in places all across our university, thought leaders uh, who who go to different conferences and association meetings and hold leadership positions in those organizations. And every time they go to a conference and speak and meet with people, folks are impressed. But we're not uh, generally uh, out there doing as much of that as we would or could be uh, if, if we had a nonprofit label and we're affiliated with a state institution. It's, it just it has a, um, and the, the wrapper sometimes matters to people. And, and I, I'm really excited that we'll get out there and tell our story more and, and uh, more people who learn about it will get excited like we are. Well, Chris and John will never be out of questions on this uh, topic, but we covered a lot of them, and I appreciate you making all this time for us. Uh, well, thank you for having us. Thank uh, you. We really appreciate it. Again, that was Chris Lynn, the president at the University of Phoenix, and John Woods, the university's chief academic officer and provost. That'll wrap it up for the podcast, but uh, first of all, I guess I do need to give you an explanation and an, and an apology. I know that it has been a long time since we uh, have done a podcast it's been the summer that wasn't around here, I guess you could say. Uh, usually summer is a time where we uh, get a little bit more time to uh, work on some longer-term projects. It has been a very busy summer, obviously. The, uh, the University of Idaho Phoenix uh, acquisition being one of the big stories we've been following this summer. But it's been kind of nonstop. And we've had to kind of take a, a bit of a hiatus, an unplanned hiatus on the podcast front. Hopefully we will be a lot more... Uh, 
predictable and a lot more productive on the podcast front. So uh, bear with me and uh, no promises, but I hope we will have more podcasts and maybe uh, some different podcasts in the future. Um, So keep an ear out for that. In the meantime, one thing that doesn't change is that for the latest education news, the latest on education policy and education politics, you need to follow us at idahoednews.org. Follow us on a daily basis because we have a lot of news that's breaking on uh, pretty much a daily basis. So check us out there. Um, You can follow us on, I almost said Twitter. I'm still always going to call it Twitter. I guess we call it X. You can follow us on X. Our handle has not changed. It's idahoednews. We still... I'm sorry, we still tweet out uh, bulletins to our breaking items and uh, bulletins on uh, breaking news there and and links to our stories. So so go to whatever you want to call it uh, and get whatever you want to call them uh, updates uh, on that social media platform. You can follow us on Facebook as well and um, comment on our stories there or just check our website at oednews.org and do it on a daily basis because there's news breaking literally pretty much every day. Until the next podcast, uh, this is Kevin Richard. Take care.